Yes. Over is again or continuous? Continuous. I've got about a 10 to 12 week class, depending upon. I've rearranged the parts, so I can't tell you exactly how far. Um, but it, that's what it takes to kind of get through all the material. Okay. What I was, because of Lent, Easter vacation, and things of that sort, I'm splitting it up into kind of four weeks and four weeks, and we'll see, four weeks maybe. Um, but, um, you know, I always, uh, as I begin, as I go through, you know, I mean, every class, I this one particularly, I'm going logically through. I want to include everything. And I can't include it all, so you've got to leave out, yeah. you know, uh, uh, something. And, and I'm tried with this one. Um, yeah, we're going to start. I've tried with this one. We're go- we've gone through the first and second commandment. We're looking at the third today. We've gone through pretty well the first article of the creed with creation, the second article with what Christ did. Now we're going to take a look at the third article of the creed with the work of the Holy Spirit, the Christian Church. Um, but interspersed with that, you know, we've had long gospel, we've had forgiveness of sins, we've had, you know, and, and, and at each point you kind of go, well, I'm going to give you a, a quick overview, but later I'm going to come back and tell you a little bit more. So, for example, today we're going to be getting into justification and sanctification, and so that'll give us a little more. But yes, when we get back together in May, um, it'll be class number five, and it's going to continue the class. So, let's go ahead and start out. You've got class number four uh, on your white sheet, and I've got my split screen like I've had before. Uh, we're starting off with the third commandment. We, we took a look at the first one, you shall have no other gods. We took a look at the sex one, second one, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God or take his name in vain. And we saw with each one of those there was something you do and you do not do. What is the third commandment? Uh, the third commandment is to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Unlike the first and second commandments, which were not, this is a do. Ah, not just don't do this, but do this. Keep the Sabbath day. What does it mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. So, Exodus 20 uh, is the, the two chapters that have the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Exodus 20 here. This is the section for the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So what do we find? We find that the Ten Commandments, or the Third Commandment, uh, dealing with the Sabbath day, God made the heaven and earth in six days. He rested on the Sabbath day. Sabbath is simply a Hebrew word which means rest day, the rest day. So what day is the rest day? It is Saturday, the Sabbath. Um... And so, God set that day aside, blessed that Sabbath day, 
and made it holy. Leviticus 23, verse 3, Six days you shall, shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So, God set this day aside. Um, it was a day to do no work. But not just for no purpose. It's not that God just wanted us to lay around and do nothing. It was a day of solemn rest, as he says, a day for convocation, for convening, for getting together. And so, uh, there are some that misunderstand uh, the Sabbath day, that somehow this is a day where, <clears throat> by our refusing to do work, we show God and give him... No, no, no. God said, I'm giving you a vacation. I'm, I'm telling you, take the day off. Why? Because I want you to hear my word. Not just no work, but no work because it will get in the way of hearing the word of God and hearing preaching and teaching. That's what he wanted. Um, God did it for us. We should rejoice. It's a gift from him. 31. Does this commandment require of us that we should keep the Sabbath, feast days, holy days of any kind, as the people did in the Old Testament? The answer is no. For in the New Testament, all this has been abolished by God himself. Why? Because Jesus is our rest. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the Sabbath day. Mark 2, 27 to 28, he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. So, Jesus, who came, he says, I'm Lord of it. He said, I didn't make uh, the Sabbath day so that you could serve it. I made the Sabbath day so that it would be a blessing to you. It was for your purpose. And so, having come, and as we see down below here, where Jesus rests in the tomb on the Sabbath day, completes his work with, it is finished on Good Friday, he rests in the tomb and says, there, I finished it. So that Paul tells us in Colossians 2, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or Sabbath days. He says they are a shadow of things to come. But the body or the substance, the other is the shadow, this is the body, it's of Christ. So, here's what we have. Uh, God created the world in six days, rested for the purpose of the convocation. What does he want? He wants us to hold to preaching, to hear and learn it. Don't despise it. Uh, run away from it. Close your ears to it. Um, but we find... But all ceremonial laws have been abolished. Uh, Jesus fulfilled it for us. Uh, that passage where he talks about it's a shadow. The Sabbath, the Old Testament laws, were all designed. They're like a shadow. But the body, the substance, is Jesus who comes in the New Testament. What we see back there was to teach us about the one who was... And once he comes, well, you don't deal with the shadow. Um, you'll see the shadows coming, and then finally when Michael arrives, I don't look down, where's the shadow? I want to get to the real thing, and so the substance, the body, is of, of Christ. 
Hebrews 4 says things like this, Therefore, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest, rests from his own work, just as God did from his. So in effect, through the forgiveness of sins, we're all in a day of rest. We all go, yes, I, 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 I no longer have to labor for my sin. I don't have to worry about that. Christ accomplished it for me. He becomes the rest. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oops, I guess I didn't do it on that side either. Oops. <clears throat> All right. And, nevertheless, having said we are to keep the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath days have been abolished, what about this? Well, why then do we celebrate Sunday and other feasts? There have been those who have said, oh, well, the Christian church, we took the Sunday and transferred it over to replace uh, and, and change. Yeah, we don't have the authority to do that. Um, in fact, we do celebrate Sundays. In fact, we celebrate other feast days. What if those aren't required? Well, they aren't required. They're not by divine command. We do this in order that we have time and opportunity for public worship. We can pick any day we want. In fact, we ought to worship any and every day, uh, without a doubt. But by having a same day, we all know, I wonder when we're going to worship we always know. It's every Sunday. Yeah, that's what it is. Now, if we happen to be a community where, let's say we all work Saturday and Sunday uh, because we're a a tourist community and we're all off Monday, I'd have service every Monday. That'd be fine. Um, But we do it for the opportunity. And that is why Luther, when he interprets this Sabbath day, he does it not in terms of Saturday, 24 hours. He does it in terms of preaching and the word. That's what this is about. If the Sabbath day was about hearing the word of God, having rest, we need to stop and hear the word of God. So, we do it for that sake. Uh, Hebrews 10.24, it says, Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So, don't give up meeting together. We need to meet together. Uh, Each one might uh, esteem one day better than another. Fine, let him do it. Um, as long as he who gives thanks gives thanks to God, he who eats or doesn't eat, he does it to the Lord. That is fine. Um, what we do find, though, and you might say, how come Sundays came about? Well, um, as I said, to gather together, preaching, um, we find that Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. He appeared to the Emmaus disciples and then to the disciples in the next room. Uh, Thomas wasn't there. When he shows up, it's the next Sunday that Jesus appears again. Then, Jesus disappears. He appears again after they have been out fishing after a Sabbath day. And the next morning, it is John 21, Sunday. Um, Jesus appears to them, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. They're beginning to understand. You gather on Sunday because that's the day Jesus comes. Um, Pentecost, the Acts 2, when they come together, uh, they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship, in the breaking of bread, of the Lord's Supper and prayers. Uh, that also uh, is the day of Pentecost, Sunday, 50 days after the uh, uh, Passover. And then, Acts 27, we find, as Paul is going around, he says, Now as the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, he said, we went to talk with them. 
they were already meeting on Sunday. So there's a precedent with this resurrection and the Sunday appearances, but it's by all means, it is not required. Um, what is forbidden? Because there is not forbidden in the third commandment. We should not despise preaching and God's word. Um, John 8.47 says, He was of God, hears God's word. And therefore, he told them, you do not hear because you are not of God's word. Uh, this is a present tense Greek word. He who is of God is hearing, not hears it once, not, oh yeah, I heard it, I'm done, but continues. It's an ongoing activity because they were not ongoing in hearing the word of God and being taught for it. He says, you're not of God. Uh, what is enjoined in the third commandment? To hold to preaching of God's word. To hold it sacred. What does that mean? Well, treat it as, as such. Um, that we would gladly hear and learn it. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5.1 <laughs> Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than give the sacrifice of fools for they do not know what they, that they do evil. Um, when we go to God's house, what do we do? We take notes. We want to make sure we're listening. We want to make sure that we're being taught. We don't go to give him our sacrifice foolishly. Um, we go about the altar of God. We proclaim the thanksgiving, the wondrous things God has done. First Thessalonians 2 describes people treating the word of God sacredly. It says, when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as in truth that it was the word of God. Oh, it goes on. Blessed are those who are taught of God. He who has taught the word is going to speak others of the good things which they have been given. Um, this preaching. Luke 10, 16. We'll come back to this a little bit later today because we're going to talk about the pastoral office as well. But in Luke 10, 16, Jesus says, He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Jesus says, so, you know, when he hears you, the pastor preaching and teaching, you're listening to Jesus. If they reject the pastor preaching and teaching, it's like rejecting Jesus. And he who rejects Jesus rejects the Father for the one who sent him. So what do we find? You know, those who say to you, oh, well, I, I, I believe in Jesus. I just don't go to church. Go, wait a minute. Says, don't give up meeting together. Come, and it says that we need to hear and not to reject. Um, or there are those Isaiah 29, 29, 13, Inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths, iron me with their lips, have removed their hearts from me, far from me. Um, simply to come and stand up and sit down to recite the words but disengage your mind or to cover up an unbelieving heart and to not uh, uh, listen to those words and take them to heart, uh, that also is to despise uh, the word of God. Um, our delight is that we might hear the word of God. Uh, some of those things that we would pray continually, uh, that's to receive, to devote ourselves to prayer, uh, to pray uh so let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. It, it's describing our, our worship and uh, uh, that which we do. And so, uh, to make sure that you take time each day 
uh, to hear and meditate on God's Word. Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the way, when you lie down, when you get up. In other words, Luther says this is to be a constant token and sign that you are a believer by the way that you treat the word. Mary? Would you say something more about that last line in number 54, uh, their fear toward me? Hosea, uh, let's see here, 54. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. Um, Hosea makes, uh, the, the priests were not teaching in the Old Testament. They were not teaching God's word. And Isaiah, below that, the last line about the Oh, the Isaiah one, not the Hosea? Uh-huh. Okay, let's go on to Isaiah. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths, and only with their lips would have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men. In other words, all they are, when we say fear them, um, uh, uh, I mean, you can talk about fear or love, but you can put them both together. It's the commandments of men that they are fearing to disobey. All they really care about is keeping the commandments of men, and thus, they don't really care about their heart but towards God. So they just mouth it with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but they're, all they really care about is keeping the man-made rules. Thank you. That's what that's about. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you. What do you mean by the commandment of man? Yeah, man-made rules kind of thing um, is, is what that is. So, you know, I tell you that it's a, uh, it's a day of obligation. You have to come to church. You go, bing, check the box. I came. I'm done. Uh, I start up, sat up, stand up, sit down, got it done. Um, but, but you know, you kept my commandment, but that's not really what God wanted. Um, we do these kind of prayers in our service. Uh, through the reading and hearing of God's word, we learn many things. Through our chanting and singing, singing of songs, hymns, and songs, we profess our faith, we proclaim to others. Uh, in the college, we're asking God for the things that we need. And, uh, and so, true prayer, true prayer is that which relies upon God's word. All of this that we do, uh, we do it in order to learn or to worship. Um, yes, there are many ways to do it. This is the way that uh, uh, the Western Church does those things. Move on to the next page. It begins with the Augsburg Confession, Article 5. Uh, the Augsburg Confession is something written by the uh, Lutheran Church, and it says that we may obtain this faith, the ministry, we're talking about the pastoral office, the pastoral office, the ministry of teaching the gospel and administering the sacraments was instituted. Now, God instituted it. He is the one who set it apart and said, there needs to be a pastoral office and you need to put a man in it. For through the word and sacraments, as through instruments, the Holy Ghost is given who works faith, where and when he pleases in them that hear the gospel. The gospel to wit, that is, that God, not for our merits, but for Christ's sake, justifies those who believe that they are received into grace 
for Christ's sake. So, this, uh, remember the Sabbath day is about being at the word of God, not despise preaching and teaching. Well, God instituted the office of preaching and teaching, and he set it up so that we might get faith. And that faith, uh, you know, might uh, justify or declare us righteous. We'll talk about that. Uh, we have several passages. Um, and, you know, I, I could have begun with this section, but really I need to teach you about that gospel first. And then tell you, you know what? Where did that gospel come from? Well, we're doing it right now. I'm in the pastoral office and I'm doing some teaching. Um, on John 20, Jesus told the apostles, Peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So he sends out his pastors to do preaching, just as that's, that's where, who sent you? Jesus sent me. Second Corinthians 2, If indeed I have forgiven anything, Paul says, I have forgiven that one for your sakes. In the presence of Christ, it's as if Christ is here. Christ wants to use the pastor as his instrument, his means. Sometimes the scriptures describe us as an ambassador. When an ambassador to another country they go, he's going on behalf of the president. You have his word, you have the president's word. Well, same thing. Acts 20:28. 20, Therefore take heed to yourselves, pastors, and, and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit makes pastors overseers. They've been uh, put there. Or Jesus gave them gave pastors, some to be pastors and, and teachers. So if that is the case, in connection with the uh, hearing of the word of God and not despising it, would be to receive the, uh, the teaching of the church through the pastor. 2 Corinthians 4, 1, Paul says, So then men ought to regard us, the apostles and pastors, as regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. The secret things is in the Greek. It's mysterion theou. Um, when you bring that into Latin, the mysteries become sacramentum dei. Uh, and so uh, we've been given those things like the word and the Holy Baptism, Lord's Supper, uh, to uh, to give those out, to use those. Jesus told the pastors, um, and I'm kind of going through down uh, through my list here. Baptism, absolution, Lord's Supper. What do you find? Uh, Jesus came to them as he's getting ready to ascend up into heaven, and he says, "Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of." He sends pastors out to baptize. So, who's supposed to preach? The pastors. Who's supposed to baptize? Well, the pastors have been sent out to do this. Now, there is an emergency baptism, and that's a different thing. Any layman can do that. But uh, normally, it's been given to them uh, so that cleansing the disciples by the washing of water through the word is talking about baptism, that we might have the comfort of salvation. This is another way in which the gospel goes out. Absolution is also another way. In John 20, when he rose from the dead, Jesus breathed on the apostles, said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, and says, If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you retain them, they are retained. When the pastor in the divine service says, I forgive you your sins, he doesn't say Jesus forgives you. Because Jesus said, When you, pastor, do it, so I use the word I, because I'm the one who's supposed to do it. And when I do it, he doesn't. Um, he said, I'm sending you, Luke 10, 16, who listens to you, listens to me. So I'm just a servant, but, but I have to do as he says. 
Also, Lord's Supper is something that has been given for the pastors to do. And this is also uh, enjoined in the third commandment. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night where he betrayed to bread, and goes on and speaks the words of institution. Um, this is what uh, we need to be celebrating in the churches. Take ye, this do, drink of it all of you, this do. This is what has been given. Why? We'll be getting to that in a, uh, another class, talking about, well, it imparts to us the forgiveness of sins. It gives to us the body and blood of Christ, this cup of blessing. That will be the wine used to pass over, which we bless with the words, Is it not a communion with the blood of Christ? They're not united. And the bread which we break, is it not a communion with the body of Christ? The bread with the body and the wine with the blood um, being given out. That too has been given that the, uh, uh, the pastors might do that to give another opportunity for forgiveness. Um, so some churches have the pastor do the blessing, but then they have um, elders and others hand it out. Is that part of the ministry, the office of the ministry? Right. Um, technically speaking, as I said, it has been given to the pastor to do. There are times that we will employ helpers. And so you would say, how far do we help? Well, I might have an altar guild who brings the elements up from the kitchen. You know, does the pastor have to do that? Well, no, oh, yeah, that can be brought. Well, can it be brought from the side table over to the center? Can you know? What we usually say is that uh, the pastor is the one who has to determine who can come and who can't, and so he's the one who's distributing. He is the first to go by with the body of Christ, and whoever gets the body of Christ, they've now been admitted to the table. So that definitely has to be the pastor who determines. After that, we usually say that, you know, if an elder or someone needs to help, uh, they're just an extra hand, but they only do what the pastor has done. They don't say any words, and they only give to who has already been given. Um, and so it's just an extra hand, is what we say. Um, we don't want them making decisions concerning or saying the words or those things. Um, all right, that gets us through, let's see, Third Commandment and the ministry from which that comes. Move on to the next page. We're going on to the third article of the Creed, which deals with the Holy Spirit. Um, we, as I said, we dealt with the Father and how he created the world. Uh, we dealt with the Son, how he suffered and died and took away our sins. Now let's talk about that third person of the Holy Trinity. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All of those go under the third article, that is, they go under uh, the person of the Holy Spirit. Luther has the explanation. What does this mean? He begins with these words. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Ghost has done something. He has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. Not just me, we're going to see, even as he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies, 
the whole Christian church on earth. Who is doing that for me? He's doing that for everybody. He keeps it with Jesus Christ and the one true faith in which Christian church, what's going on? He daily and richly forgives all sins to me and all believers and will at the last day raise up me and all the dead and give unto me and all believers in Christ eternal life. This is most certainly true. All right. Make sure we have time for some of the other things. Holy Spirit, we've already talked about him being true God. He was present at creation. He was hovering over the water. He is one of the three persons. He is true God. Not just uh, a, a voice. Um, uh, he is uh, called God. Uh, he was sent, uh, John 16, to go and, and convict the world of, of, of sin and righteousness and judgment. Um, he's the spirit of truth that's going to guide us into all truth. What do we find in Matthew 28 when we're to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It puts three persons, puts them equal to each other. Um, speaks in other places about, so the Holy Spirit is not just a power or an energy. It is actually true God, one of the persons of the Trinity. Oops, switch that one. Uh, if I have to describe the Holy Spirit, this is what I'm looking at. The Holy Spirit has been sent by the Father and Jesus. He has been sent into the Word. It is the Word of Truth. And so he has described himself as the Spirit of Truth. What does that Word teach us about? Ultimately, it is always to teach us or to point us to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, therefore, if you want to say, well, where's the Holy Spirit working? Wherever the preaching of God's Word is, the teaching is, the Word is, that is being given to his believers so that it has faith, makes them a part of the Christian church, changes their hearts. At the bottom of the page, it says, I believe, has the first words of Luther, I believe that I cannot. Now look at here. If I take out the other parts, Luther starts off with, I believe that I cannot, and then he asks, by my own reason or strength, and then he comes back to, believe in Jesus Christ. The whole sentence, if you take out the parts, is, I believe that I cannot believe. Which sounds kind of crazy. Um, why does Luther say that? Um, why does he say, well, I can't believe. Belief is something that's beyond me. Uh, uh, I can't work this up in myself. I can't make it happen. I can't make myself believe in Jesus Christ. Why not? Ephesians 2, uh, verse 1, says, And you who made alive, you who were dead in trespasses and sins. How are we described? Well, because of the fall, we've talked about that in the first lesson, we've all fallen into sin, we have original sin, he describes us as dead. And that means spiritually dead. Yes, we're walking around in our life, but we, we don't have the knowledge. We don't know spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So even when the spiritual thing comes to him, he is so ignorant of these things, he can't even accept them, he can't receive them. He says, well, that's ridiculous, that is foolishness. Um, Romans 8, 7, the carnal mind is enmity, it's hatred against God. 
the natural mind is mad at God. It doesn't want to hear God's word. And so that's why I cannot, by my own reason or strength, I, I, I couldn't do it. Um, by myself, I'm, I'm like a dead man. Um, so here's the, what we need. We need the Holy Spirit to do something. Luther goes on, but the Holy Spirit called me by the gospel, enlightened me, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. Let's see what he's done. 177, top of the next page. What has the Holy Spirit done to bring you to Christ and to sanctify you? Well, first thing he does, he has called you by the gospel. Luke 14 says, Come, for all things are now ready. Or 2 Thessalonians 2.14, To which he called you by our gospel for obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.9, God hath saved us. He's called us with an holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Um, the Holy Spirit, by means of the word, works. And by means of this gospel, the Holy Spirit calls us and actually changes us from being dead to making us alive. And how does he does it? By the gospel preaching itself. By offering to us the gift, and that which comes before is law as well, uh, you know, the law which shows our sin, and then this which shows us the forgiveness of sins. He is uh, creating faith in us so that we believe. Question? So, but the gospel doesn't just come out of us, come to us from the air, and that's... No. That's, what do, how does it get to us? That's why I gave you the office of the ministry right before this to say where the church calls the pastor, the pastor is preaching the word, teaching the word. That is how the gospel gets out normally. I mean, that's the way he set it up. Now, granted, I'll preach you the gospel and you'll tell your neighbor the gospel, of course. I, I mean, I'm not going to say it's uh, um, But... Uh, the Holy Spirit is working where there is the preaching and the teaching, and that's normally in the church. I mean, uh, you, you can go to Kroger, but you're not going to find out about Jesus. They're not going to preach the gospel to you. They're not. I mean, it's in his church that it's, it's happening. Um, that's where the Holy Spirit is working, but he always works through means. So, I mean, you're right. You know, you're out hiking. People say, well, I went out hiking in the woods to meet with God. I go, well, that's not where he's working. He's there, but he's working here to create faith. I also, you might remember my diagram from before, that God presents to us this gospel, and it creates the man, the hand of faith that receives it, and so I've used that before. But I want you to remember, as I put this dotted line around this, that both the God offering the gospel to the pastoral office and the preaching, and the faith that comes, that's really all God's work. Um, as I mentioned before with the, uh, with the beggar, I offered the, the Big Mac to the man. It's the offering the Big Mac that makes him reach out his hand to grab it. He doesn't go around saying, well, I was going around grabbing and I got this Big Mac, you know, like he did it. We'll find that faith also is a gift, a gift that comes from God. And it comes by the gospel. Not only does he call us by the gospel, but we're going to find in the next one, as Luther has said, he's enlightened me with his gifts. 
he has by the gospel called and like me with gifts. So what? I know Jesus as my Savior, and I trust in him and believe and I rejoice in, in him. Um, he's changed us. 1 Peter 2.9 describes us this way. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, dead in our sins, he made us alive. In darkness of sin, he called us into the light. Uh, We were not his people, then we became his people. He commanded the light to shine out of darkness. He has shined in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Once you were in darkness, Ephesians 5, now you are light in the Lord. So he's doing this. Here's the passage, Ephesians 2, that talks about how even faith is a gift. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So even being saved by faith, is not our own deed. It came from God calling us by the gospel. And now he's enlightening us so that we know what he is doing. Uh, God the Holy Spirit offering to us all of Christ's benefits in the gospel. And with that he gives me faith and he's going to be working then a holy life inside of us. Question. We're talking about strengthening our faith. What I guess scripturally does that mean in terms of how we act or how we how we um, go to church how we, how we listen to God's word so there are two things that happen one thing that happens is is that we learn more about Christ more about what he has done for us how he has you know uh, uh, that strengthens our trust in him the more that we go, wow, you know, just as I mentioned last time, about the more you learn about God, the more you love God. <laughs> um, that strengthens. The second thing that happens is to strengthen our faith so that as we trust him more, we will trust him as it regards our finances. We'll be able to give an offering at the beginning week and trust that he'll take care of the rest of it rather than just giving him leftovers. We will trust him with our children. We'll trust him with our wife. We'll trust him with our business. We'll trust him so we don't worry. It, it will change our holy life. We'll start living differently because of it. And that's what I'm getting to next time, or with the next uh, thing. There is, what is this special work? Um, first, he's called me by the gospel. Next, he has enlightened me by his gift. There is a special work that we describe of the Holy Spirit. So, what do we say? We say, he sanctifies us. Well, uh, when we talk about create, first article, we usually talk about creation. When we talk about second article, we talk about redemption. Jesus redeemed us. When we talk about the third article, we say, wait, he sanctified us. The word sancto is holy. He makes us holy. This is his work, to sanctify us. We were not holy. He is now going to sanctify us. But let's be quite clear, because we've got to speak about these two things. And these are, if I already told you about law and gospel, told you how important that is, this is right behind it. Justification and sanctification. Okay? These are the twofold work of the Holy Spirit. First of all, justification. The definition is, he declares sinners to be righteous. By giving us the gift of faith, we receive Christ and his perfect righteousness. So Jesus led a perfect life, 
and by faith, we grab onto it, and it is reckoned for ours. It becomes our holiness. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about his becomes mine. So, Romans 4, 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So, I'm not holy of myself. I'm a rotten sinner. But because Jesus is righteous, and I trust not in my work, but in his work for me, I trust in Jesus, I'm declared righteous. Or maybe you heard me say one time, it's like putting on Jesus' white garment, and it covers up all my sin. And when God looks at me, he says, well, that's a, a righteous holy man. And I go, well, I'm a righteous sinner. He says, yeah, but I covered you up in Jesus. You are. So first of all, this righteousness that we have is a righteousness that is outside of us. Um, let me talk about this declared righteousness. He says that we are. We of ourselves are still sinners, but he declares us righteous. Um, it would be no different from a uh, criminal who has done terrible things, and the judge has to make a decision concerning him. And, you know, Jesus says, listen, I paid the man's penalty. I have taken away all of his uh, sins. I've paid his penalty. And so the judge says concerning the man, I declare this man innocent and bangs the gavel. Well, at that point, it doesn't matter what the guy did. The judge has declared it to be such. And when he declares it, there we are, when he declares it, even though the man did those things, he walks away. He can't be thrown in jail. He's declared to be innocent. And that's what we have with justification. Let me get the sanctification, and then I'll get to it. Because you kind of got to get both together before, before it kind of clicks. The second work of the Holy Spirit is what we call sanctification. And this is not righteousness outside of us, but working righteousness in us. He's actually changing us. By working in us a renewal of the heart, he works righteousness in us. That is, he starts to bring out of us good works. We start to say good things. We start to think good things. We start to do good things. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God, even your sanctification. God wants this. Now, first he has to save us. You can't do any good works unless you are justified first, unless you're declared righteous. But once you've been declared righteous... God then, and it happens simultaneously, but that flows out of it. It's a renewal of the heart so that now I have the power. Before, as I said, the natural man thinks it's foolishness. The, the natural man has hatred against God. But now, I don't. I don't I, now I struggle against Satan. I overcome Satan. I overcome the world. I come over my sinful self. He is now making us righteous. So justification is declaring us to be this is where God starts to bring out of us righteous things. He makes us holy. This is declares us to be holy. All right, Patty. Um, it's just a thought. I don't know if this should even be in here. Um, but under justification, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Is this what happened to Abraham? Is this how Abraham yes. was... Absolutely. Um, I don't know if I have the passage, Genesis 15. I had to cut some passages out because my, 
we're already up to five pages from back. Um, in the old, that's the most, I mean, that's the status doctrine, the, the, the main passage in the Old Testament where it says that God declared Abraham righteous by faith. That is justification. Um, absolutely. And then we see Abraham starting to lead a righteous yeah. life, which is his sanctification. Okay, okay. And that's how yeah. all the Old Testament people were saved. Everyone who has ever been saved is saved in this way. Okay. Whether Old or New Testament. Okay. Adam and Eve were that, saved. That was, that was where I was kind of In going that way, it. everyone is. Now, the only difference is they believed in the Jesus who was yet to come. We look back at the Jesus who has already come. But okay. everyone who is saved is saved by trusting in Jesus. And you know, we can show you yeah. that. Um, so justification and sanctification. Those are the two things that God does. Now, bottom of page five, justification by grace for Christ's sake through faith apart from works. If you have to memorize any line, that is it. That is the Reformation principle um, that Martin Luther taught that the Lutheran church has adhered to. What is this? This teaching of justification that we're declared righteous is the most important it is the central teaching. It is like the hub of a bicycle wheel in which all the spokes are connected to it. Every teaching about in the church is connected to justification. If it's not, it's wrong. It's this teaching of justification by grace for Christ that through faith apart from works is found only in Christianity. All others teach a salvation by works of one way or another. It is the only teaching that will give true comfort to the sinner, and it is the only teaching that gives all glory to God. That is how important this uh, teaching is. And so, as I put it up here, uh, if we're going to talk about, and sometimes we just say, well, I'm justified, we mean I'm converted, I'm born again, I'm saved, whatever you want to use for this moment in time when you become uh, a child of God, that's another way to speak, I'm justified. Sometimes you say, well, how am I? Well, you say I'm justified by grace, meaning it was God's undeserved. I didn't deserve it. He came to me and gave it to me. Um, I was an enemy of God before this. I was in darkness. I was lost, but now I'm found. You know, that kind of thing. Sometimes we say I'm justified by grace through faith. Why? Because I received it through belief. Sometimes we'll add in, for Jesus' sake, that is, without Jesus' life and death supplied, I, I wouldn't have a righteousness of my own. And finally, what goes with that is, it is without works that I'm saved. Why? Because we can't keep the law before that. And afterwards, only partially. So, the Father declares us sinners to be righteous by grace, for Christ's sake, through faith, without works. Questions? Alright. Concerning this, um, when sinners come to faith, they nevertheless, bottom page 5, retain the old sinful nature. It doesn't go away. <laughs> and thus we must fight against it. So in this sense, a believer is both a saint and a sinner. We have Romans 7.18 in which Paul says, He's a believer at this point. He says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So he looks at himself and says, Yeah, I still got a rotten sinful nature in me. 
For to will is present with me. In other words, I want to please God. I want to do that. Why? Because he has converted me. He's justified me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. I got this struggle going on. Um, and so, uh, the one who is uh, sanct- justified us, now, top of page 6, he has sanctified me in the true faith. That is, he has by faith renewed my heart, gives me the power to struggle against, overcome state in the world, and the flesh, and to walk in godliness and good works. So that whatever a child of God does or thinks in faith according to the Ten Commandments for the glory of God and the benefit of his neighbor is actually a, a, a holy work, a, a good thing that he has done. So to explain justification and sanctification and why it is such a good thing to be able to distinguish these two is this point. So, before, if this is the point where you are saved on my diagram, before I am a saved, I am completely a sinner, I am no saint, I am dead in my transgressions and sins, I am darkness, I am at enmity with God, What all those things. From the point that I believe, I am baptized, I come to faith, at that point, I become a sinner and a saint. He gives me Christ's righteousness. It's put on top of me. I'm covered over. When God looks at me, he says, you are saved. And from that point on, I begin to do good works. He's working that in me. But what I find is that as God works in me, sometimes I defeat the sinful nature. Sometimes I listen to him and sin. And my righteousness goes crazy. Sometimes I'm better. Oh, you're doing really well. And then I begin to boast about my life. Oh, and I, you know. Okay, it goes up and down. It varies like the different percentages or whatever. When we die, the sinful nature is finally destroyed and we are complete saint. In heaven, we're not struggling with our sinful nature. We're not, you know. Uh, at that point, I am all good. Um, so that's what we have. So if we take a look at, and here's where I kind of draw my chart, concerning my being declared righteous or justified. Before I am saved, I am 0% justified. <laughs> am I justified? Absolutely not. From the moment that God does that for me, I'm 100% justified. I'm a saint. I completely have Jesus' righteousness, and it's good. I'm a 100% saint. In fact, for the rest of my life, as long as I believe in Christ, I'm 100% justified. And then, at the end, with the simple nature one, uh, uh, I am righteous. But you will see that my sanctification, before I'm a sinner, now I can't do anything holy or right, good, because I don't have faith. After I am, uh, uh, my sanctification starts, I don't know, a, a, a little. I, I start to believe, I start to talk about that. And as I said, it varies, goes up and down, or whatever, until finally... Uh, on the last day, all I do is good works uh, by the time I'm in heaven. If I trust <coughs> in my justification, being declared righteous by grace through faith for Christ's sake without works, if I trust in that, do I know that I'm saved? Well, it's always 100%. So I can be sure that I am saved because my justification is either 0 or 100. As long as I believe it's 100. Well, good. So I'm 100% sure I'm saved. If I trust in my sanctification, sometimes I go, well, yeah, I kind of think more. No, I don't think I'm saved. Well, maybe I kind of, maybe I have. No, I'm not. It goes all over the place. If you trust in your doing of good works, you'll never quite know. You're always going to be saying, well, I, I think so. I don't. Um, 
That's why God does not want us to trust in works. Even our works after we have been saved. He says, always trust in being declared righteous for Christ's sake through faith. Justification. I do. Alright, next part. Um, what else has he done? Um, I talked about him creating a clean heart in us um, and, and doing these things. Here it talks about how you'll bear much fruit if Christ is in you. Going on. He has by the gospel kept me in the true faith. Middle of page 6. Uh, not only does the Holy Spirit uh, call us by the gospel and create in us a new heart, but he also keeps us in the true faith. He promises, Philippians 1, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Or 1 Peter 1.5 says, you are being kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. That is God's will. He doesn't just say, well, I'm going to give this to you. I don't know if you can hold on to it. He says, no, I'm going to help you keep that. I'm going to keep you, when you come to faith, I am going to provide you the word, the sacraments. I'm going to find you what you need. I want to want you to guard your hearts and minds with those things because I, the Holy Spirit keeps us in that true faith. 182, as the Holy Spirit wrought all this in you only, are you the only one who created faith? Well, no. He calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ. 183, is the Holy Spirit willing to do this in everyone who hears the gospel. Yes, of course he is. It's sincere. When you hear the word of God, it's because God wants you to be saved. He wants to create faith in you. But we do have men, and most men, obstinately resist the word and the spirit of God. They absolutely refuse to allow that means to convert them. And it says, those who resist are lost by their own fault. God said, as I live, said the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Um, God comes to us again and again. God will have all men to be saved. He wants them to come to a knowledge of the truth. But if you cut yourself off from it and say, well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm never going to go to church and I'm not going to hear the word of God. Well, that's the way the Holy Spirit is working. That's where he is doing those things. Um, Jesus describes the Jewish uh, people that, at the time who had rejected the word. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that killed the prophets, stoned those sent to you. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? But you were not. You were not willing uh, to do that. And so there are men that refuse that and thus are not saved. Let's talk about the church, the Holy Christian Church. All right, page seven. I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. When we talk about the church, we're talking about the believers. We're not talking about a building. We're not talking about a particular denomination association or one particular congregation or two. Uh, the church is made up of believers. The whole number of all believers are only believers, and all believers are members of the church. Uh, they are a part of the church. 
what about this church? Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 22 says this. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. He's made us a part of a city. We're the saints in the household of God. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So, the church is the believers. What happens? They hear the words, Old and New Testament, the apostles and prophets, and this foundation is Jesus Christ. That's what they teach about. So the church is built on that. They all then become a one church, a holy people, saints, and Jesus is uh, the head of the body or the head of his, of his church. Why do we believe there's only one church? Why couldn't there be many? Well, because all believers are one spiritual body whose only head is Christ. Um, well, if there is only one Jesus Christ, you can't have other churches of believers who are holy. There can only be one of those. Um, and so there is only one Lord, there's only one faith, there's only one baptism, one God and Father of all. There is only one church. But we have to say, 186, I believe in the church because I can't see it. Oh, I can see a building, I can see a denomination, but I, can I see the one church? No, if the church is made up of believers, then the believers are those that have faith, and I can't see faith. No one can look into another's heart and see if he believes. So I, I, I can't see this. Because we are nevertheless assured that the Holy Ghost at all times gathers and preserves a congregation of believers, wherever the gospel is preached and the sacraments are rightly administered, there must be believers there. That's what he promises. I can't see it. I don't know who is. Maybe they all are. Maybe they're not. Um, but this is the place. So we have to say, I believe that there is a church, because he's told us there is. We have to say there is only one, because Jesus Christ is the head, and there's only one Lord. I have to say that it is a holy church, because guess what? All of these ones who believe have been declared righteous in Christ by faith. Uh, they are declared righteous, and they'll start to do holy things as well. Uh, so, this is a holy church. Finally, uh, 189, why do you believe in the uh, holy Christian church? Uh, because the church is built on Christ. Christ himself is the sole foundation. Uh, no other foundation can a man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Where can I find this one holy Christian church? Well, the Augsburg Confession, which I cited earlier, said this. They, the Lutheran theologians, teach the one holy church is to continue forever. The church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. So that's where we go to find uh, the church. So, when do we properly use this doctrine of the church. When we take heed to be and remain members of a church that confesses the entire doctrine of the word of God in all its purity, and among whom the sacraments are rightly administered according to Christ's institution, we should also contribute toward its maintenance and extension according to our ability, and we should avoid all false churches. 
So if we know that the Holy Christian Church is the place where the right preaching and teaching are going on, we want to be a member of that church, that congregation. We want to make sure to support that so that it continues to go on. Uh, we need to avoid falsehood and not support it. Jesus tells us things like, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves, and the Lord, check God's word and see if uh, what's being taught. Uh, if you continue in my word, Jesus says, then you are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, the truth shall set you free. Uh, if you find those that are not preaching correctly, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are raped are ravening wolves. Uh, if there are those, Romans 16, 17, if I beseech you, brethren, mark those which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and tells us to avoid those uh, who teach falsely. Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins, we've gone over before, but uh, that's also included in uh, this one as well. Uh, the scriptures teach that by grace for Christ's sake through the gospel daily and richly, God forgives all sins to me and all believers. Where does he do that? In his church, where he sends the preaching and teaching, the baptizing uh, that is going on. Uh, Romans 10, 14 and 15 says it this way. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? So, unless they're sent, you're not going to have preaching. Unless you have preaching, they're not going to hear. And if they don't hear the truth, how can they believe in it? And if they don't believe in it, they're not going to call in the name of the Lord. So finally, once Paul gets us all the way from believe, all the way back to being sent, he says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. What does he say? How blessed are the feet of the pastors who are sent by God preaching the word that you hear and you believe that you might call in the name of the Lord. This is what the Lord desires. That's the way that he is giving us the forgiveness of sins and in which he is keeping us in the faith. That doctrine which we teach are things like this, Romans 3.25. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith. He's declared righteous without the deeds of the law. All right, what about the resurrection? Fourth, of the resurrection of the body. What do you believe occurred to the resurrection of the body? On the last day, God's going to raise me up and all the dead. Everybody gets their body back on the last day when Christ returns. Uh, so that our bodies, the same bodies that have died, shall be made alive again. Uh, Job 19 is probably the clearest one of those. Uh, you don't, it's not, uh, it's not a different body. It's, it's, I know that my Redeemer lives. He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, my eyes shall behold him and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Although all the dead will rise, what difference will there be in the resurrection of the dead? The believers will arrive with glorified bodies unto everlasting life. The unbelievers will rise to an eternal death, that is, to everlasting shame, to command and torment in hell. So everybody gets their body back, but some go to heaven at that point, and some go to hell. 
that believers get this glorified body, a body that is without sin, uh, to everlasting life. The unbelievers uh, really theirs to an everlasting contention. Philippians 3.21, Christ will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. We'll get a body like Christ. But for those who do not believe, Isaiah tells us their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched. Uh, they'll wish that it could all cease, but they will die eternally. And so it will continue and continue. Last part. What difference, uh, I already mentioned eternal life, what difference What difference will there be in the resurrection of the dead? Talked about that. Eternal life. Uh, the scriptures teach concerning uh, eternal life. All believers when they die, according to the Spirit, will at once be present with Christ. And after the last day, they will be present with Christ, body and soul. They'll live with them together eternally. That says in 206, all believers uh, will receive this. 207, are you sure that you will enter into eternal life? Answer, yes. According to the scriptures, I am firmly to believe that as God has in time called me by the gospel, enlightened me, sanctified, and kept me in the true faith, even so, we find out that from eternity, even before the world was created, he has chosen me unto the adoption of children, unto life everlasting. And he says, no man shall pluck me out of his hands. God had a plan. And he's working it all out. Um, and so we find that God, who is doing all of this for us, well, yes, of course we can be sure that we are saved. We can be sure because God keeps his promises. When he says things like, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned, we look at this and go, well, I know I'm weak, I'm not, yeah, but... He who believes and is baptized will be saved. God has promised. Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul tells us about what he is sure of. I am persuaded of the things that can't harm him, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, the one who we trust in, the one in whom we have been convinced that he has suffered and died for us, that he has uh, created faith in us, we know that he is able to do it. Last passage is 2 Timothy 1.12. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He creates in us not a wishy-washy faith, but a faith that says, yes, I know that God is taking care of this. Um, and this is what the Holy Spirit works through that preaching and teaching and the continual calling us by the gospel and all of these things. Any questions? All right, I'm a little bit over, but let's conclude with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these four classes of teaching, and we ask, dear Lord, uh, that these Holy Spirit might use these words to create and strengthen our faith in you, uh, so that we might uh, live confident lives, lives as, as your children, uh, wishing to uh, give thanks and to please you and to, to praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.